Hi, my honeys. Welcome back to another episode of the Open House podcast. And I'm excited for today because we're getting into an area that we haven't really gone before. Now, you know, at Open House, everything we talk about is love, sex, attachment, dating, relating, I guess really just human psychology and what it means to be a human that has to interact with other people. But a big part of the journey that's going to come is understanding what is going on inside of us and how that shows up on the outside of us. And I guess we've already started to do that, you know, by looking at how the anxious attachment that we have that shows up with the outside world, that actually starts on the inside of us. And today's episode is a little bit similar. Now, I don't know about you, but I do feel like this connection between gut health and mental health, like even while we are seeing so much more of it, and hearing so much more of it, it still feels so abstract to so many of us. Like the fact that the food we put in our mouth becomes ourselves, builds the blocks for our mood, literally, and then that shows up in how we show up on the world outside of us. Like that for me is still quite an abstract concept. And I think that today's episode is really like the foundations of that belief Oh my God, I don't know if you can hear the cat. The cat is like screaming at the tiny kitten. Anyway, what I was saying is this feels quite abstract and I'm really excited for us to start to break this down. And sometimes I think it's not until you've really lived something or experienced something that firsthand you can understand how A plus B equals C. So I want to tell you, this is something I've experienced myself. And a number of years ago, when I was with my ex-boyfriend, he was vegan. So I decided I wanted to go vegan. I wanted to maybe respect his beliefs. I also felt really bad about the animals. I'd also done a lot of reading into the literature around how maybe some types of animal products were not so good for us. And I made this decision to go vegan. At the same time, I also was deep in my battle with fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain disorder. And I was in so much pain. It was like absolutely debilitating. So I thought, okay, maybe if I remove these inflammatory foods from my diet, maybe my body will be less inflamed. Maybe I will be in less pain. So I went on this journey into veganism. But you guys know me. I love naughty food. Like I could not survive without my pizza, my pepperoni pizza. And so what happened? I started eating these like processed meats, processed cheeses, as a replacement for all the things that I knew and I loved and that I was actually wired to like almost need at that point in my life because I hadn't really gone into my own connection and psychology to warm, comfort-based carbohydrate foods. Anyway, between that and the general stress that I was going through in my life, like I was not at a good place in my life. Coming out of COVID, I started working with a biohacking clinic and I referenced this in, in today's episode. They gifted me like $10,000 of treatments to try and get to the bottom of my chronic pain. And one of the things that they did was they tested my gut using this test called the organic acid test. And when I say that they literally sat me down and told me, you are chronically depressed, clinically depressed, I don't remember the words that they used. When they told me you literally have like very little dopamine and your body physically can't produce the dopamine because you also don't have any tryptophan and all of these other amino acids that my body needed to build serotonin, to build dopamine. And I was not getting them. Like I literally was such a bad vegan. And this isn't on veganism. This is on how I ate as a vegan. 
I was not giving my body a balanced diet. I was still feeding it with like processed stuff that just like wasn't good for me. And as a result of that, they basically said to me like, you are depressed. And this also could have been going on for years before the veganism. This could actually have been something I struggled with my whole life because they also helped me understand that that was why I relied on high intensity exercise so much. Like why I'm obsessed with spinning, obsessed with boxing, like obsessed with those boot camp fitness classes where you go in and it's like the best fucking 45 minutes of your life and it feels like you're in a nightclub. Why is that? Because my body is literally like creating endorphins and just helping me to feel the way that I didn't before the class. So for me, this was just like so revolutionary. It made so much sense. And that was the starting point of me realizing, wow, mental health does not start in your head. Like mental health, you might feel it in your brain, but it doesn't start in your brain. This is a full body experience. And that full body experience, I think, is going to be a huge thing we're going to cover and continue to cover and go much deeper into over the next, I guess, remainder of the year and beyond on this podcast. I'm so excited. There's so much to talk about that we also didn't get into today. You know, the very, very specific components around gut health and mental health and how even if you get your diet on point, if you have a leaky gut, a lot of proponents say that your body can't actually absorb the nutrients because it's literally leaking out of the tiny junctures in your gut rather than being absorbed into your body where you need it. So that's been a big journey of mine is understanding how to rebuild my gut. And also being in Mexico has challenged that on so many levels because it has brought so many different microbes and bacterial strains like into my body. And our gut's supposed to be in a state of balance, right? I've experienced firsthand that when my gut went out of balance, when there was more bacteria that was bad than good, because it's not about eradicating the bad, like we need both. They're supposed to sort of live together in this in this balance. But I experienced firsthand that when my gut went out of whack in Mexico, I felt depressed all over again. Like truly, it came out of nowhere. And there were like weeks on end when I was just like, not myself. I was crying the whole time. I just felt like, what is the point? Like nothing is good. Nothing is working. My stomach was like so unwell the whole time. I just was in a really bad place. So I have just lived this experience of starting to learn firsthand that gut health is connected to our mental health. So there's a lot more for us to go into on this. We will do that. Another thing that I always talk about that I feel like has been revolutionary for me is my lion's mane mushroom. It's very, very helpful. They call it the mental health mushroom. There is so much research behind this mushroom and about how it strengthens brain cells and it stimulates the growth of new ones. Like that is crazy. We talk about all the time about how we need to build new neural pathways to stop being obsessed with the past or toxic people or all of the cycles that we've run our whole life literally subconsciously on repeat. So I think that this is incredible how it can literally build you new ones and you can decide how you mold them. But what's also amazing about it is that it supports the immune system and studies show that these mushrooms literally feed the healthy bacteria in your gut, that they reduce brain inflammation, that they reduce inflammation that's been connected to depression. They also increase the diversity and richness of our gut flora, which literally improves our gut health. And I'm going to link that blog post in the show notes with all of the links to the science and all of the PubMed and the clinical research in case you want to go and have a look for yourself. 
talk about these lion's mane mushrooms in my household the whole time. I'm like, mum, have you taken your mushrooms? Take your goddamn mushrooms. Because we have Alzheimer's, we have dementia in the family. And that is a cycle that I am going to break in my family. So I know that this understanding and the, the knowledge that we're going to be talking about today is a starting point in that. In today's episode, we also get into things like Alzheimer's disease. I had no idea that it was the leading cause of death in the UK. That is crazy. And if you are an Open House Premium subscriber, the magic moment bonus episode that you get with this week's episode is Kimberly Wilson telling us the actionable tips and tricks on how to avoid Alzheimer's. Kimberly is a chartered psychologist. She's an author. She's also the governor of the Tavistock and Portman NHS Mental Health Trust, which is huge. And she's the former chair of the British Psychological Society's Training Committee in Counselling Psychology. And for those of you that are great British Bake Off fans, I don't even know if I said that properly because it's not a TV show that I watch, Great British Bake Off or The Great Big British Bake Off or whatever it is, if you're a fan, you might recognize Kimberly because she also has been on that too. So we cover so much ground today and I think it's just a really, really important listen. So if you're here, you're showing up for you, your present self, your future self, your future health and the future generation's health in your family, I'm freaking proud of you. Today's episode is sponsored by Lilybod. Keep listening for your code to get 30% off the entire collection by being a listener of Open House wherever you are based in the world. Lilybod is an Australian designed activewear brand that I've been wearing since 2015, so coming up for nearly a decade. It's dynamic, modern and seriously high quality. And when I tell you that the pieces from 2015 that I still own still look new, I can guarantee that they work for everything and everyone. And I have 100% faith in this brand. From your healing girl walk to your hit class, from weight training to Pilates, picking the kids up from school or rushing to therapy, or even out for your third iced coffee of the day, even though we know we're only supposed to have one, Lilybod has something for everyone. From the perfect core collection leggings that look amazing with a baseball cap, to oversized sweats, tracksuits, the cutest cycling shorts, and amazing rib tanks, I love it all. But what I love most about this brand is that their focus this year is to share the word around how physical health is just one part of the puzzle to feeling your best. They understand that mental health starts from within and I love that they're the brand that supports me as I navigate this beautiful thing called life. Whether I'm having a good day, a bad day or a I need to call my therapist day. Use code OPENHOUSE at checkout for 30% off and if you're in our community area you'll get a crazy 40% off too. Now back to the main episode. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Open House Podcast. I am so excited to have Kimberly Wilson here with us today. She's a chartered psychologist with a master's degree in nutrition and she's also an author, which is very, very cool. Kimberly believes that the way we think about mental health as being separate from our physical health is fundamentally flawed and Anyone that listens to this podcast knows that that is literally a cornerstone pillar of our whole mission as a podcast. So I think it's going to be such an important episode. We're going to be demystifying theories. We're going to be deep diving into queries. Really, we're just going to be getting into this topic. We're going to be having a great chat. And I'm so excited to have Kimberly here with us today. So I think we'll just jump straight in. And I think, again, one of the things at Open House that's so important for us is understanding like the foundational pieces of things. Because once you understand, you can start to change your actions and behaviors. So I'd love to just start between like this connection between gut health and mental health. You know, I've already said it feels abstract. And I think that's because 
for so many, it still feels like, how can something that goes into my mouth get digested in my gut, kind of end up maybe changing my neurotransmitters? Yeah, sure. And I think I would even expand it out a bit further than than just the gut, because I think whilst we are learning a lot more about the relationship between the gut-brain axis and the influence of either the neurons or the microbes or their byproducts on the brain and brain function, I think from my perspective, it goes back even further than that to the fundamental position that your brain is made of food. Some of the components that make up your brain are, can only be found in certain foods. So there are certain aspects of the diet, certain nutrients that are absolutely irreplaceable in terms of the structure of your brain. So when people think about mood regulation or motivation, they might think, oh, you know, neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine. And how do I just make sure I've got enough of that? Well, of course, serotonin and dopamine are made from nutrients. They're made from amino acids. They're made from vitamin C, calcium, phosphorus. All of these nutrients are cofactors that transform, say, in in the case of serotonin, the amino acid tryptophan into your serotonin. So it's not just the gut. Your brain and how it works is dependent on adequate nutrition. Mm, so interesting you said tryptophan there because I'm going to share a real life experience here which I think was the moment for me that put all of this into you know wow okay yes this connection is so clear and makes so much sense which was that I started working with a biohacking clinic in London as one of my clients and they gifted me a lot of testing as part of working with them. At the time I was vegan, at the time I was also probably very, very stressed, which I think is something we're going to get into in today's episode as well. And they said, oh, you have incredibly low dopamine levels. You know, you probably are experiencing symptoms of depression, et cetera, et cetera. And they helped me understand that concept of a cofactor, which is that they mentioned that you need tryptophan to build something. And without that something, you can't build dopamine. But for me, it just made so much sense when they drew it out on a piece of paper. Is that how it works? The analogy that I use is of a factory. So if we're using, say, serotonin as our example, your raw product, your raw ingredient is tryptophan and it's amino, an amino acid. So it's a particle, a piece, a component of a protein. And then you have to you have to put it on the factory conveyor belt. And then the workers have to transform it into your end product, which is your serotonin. And so the workers that work on that production line, transforming the raw product into your end product, those are your cofactors. So they're the additional things that are needed to make that transformation. And so that's why it's so important. It's kind of like, well, So iron is a cofactor for serotonin synthesis. And that means then that if you are very, very iron deficient, if you're extremely anemic, then you're going to have problems in that synthesis, in that production line. So it might not matter how much protein you're eating, how much tryptophan is available. You might have loads and loads and loads of tryptophan available. If you've got a blockage on that production line, if those you know, your factory workers are are off sick or they're on a break, then nothing is getting produced or your production is going to be impaired. And that's going to have an impact on your, on your final product. I love that analogy of the conveyor belt. I feel like one thing we do at Open House is we always try to work in analogies. So you can kind of bring this information into a really sort of easy to understand concept. And that, that conveyor belt is perfect. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think the way that we are told to eat today. It's so hard to understand what nourishing 
means in today's society. And there's so much conflicting information. You hear some people saying, oh, veganism changed my life. Whereas veganism made me very unwell. So I love that you're kind of touching on so many of these nuances. And I would love to know, you know, you've spoken about brain health already. Does that cover things like low mood, depression, and also ADHD and and panic attacks? You know, what does your remit of like brain health look like? Sure. Yeah. So if you went into your doctors and you said, I just feel faint all of the time. And I just feel kind of really restless. And I'm my, I feel breathless a lot of the time. And I'm having heart palpitations. Those would be the symptoms that you would be expressing. And then your doctor would be like, hmm, okay, it sounds like there is something going on with the health or function of your heart. Right. And so this is really the perspective that I would like more of us to be thinking about the brain with. So if you go into your doctor and you say, I don't know why, but I'm feeling really low. I I can't focus very well. It's, you know, I feel tearful when objectively things are fine. Again, those are your symptoms. And what I would like more of us to be doing is thinking, oh, what might those symptoms be telling us about the health and status of the organ that underlies those symptoms? And that's not to say that, you know, nutrition is going to fix everything. That's, That's not the kind of case that I'm making. But if we understand that the that your heartbeat is an emergent measurable property of your heart the organ then actually your mind your focus your thinking your attention your dreams your ambition your ability to concentrate are emergent properties of the organ of your brain i would put it all under that umbrella and and i would just be inviting people to think why do we assume that nutrition has no role to play here particularly when we know that your brain is the hungriest organ in your body it it works through more energy per square centimeter than any other organ in your body and with that energy demand comes a very high nutrient demand so why would we think that your brain wasn't using those nutrients in its in its basic functions. Let's optimize brain health and then let's see what happens. Yeah, maybe it won't completely fix your depression, but maybe it will ease the burden a little bit. And if we're thinking about something like depression, easing the burden a little bit might be the difference between you getting up and opening the curtains in the morning or you staying in bed or you feeling like you've got quite enough about you to go and pick your kids up from school rather than them having to come back by themselves. And so it's really about the contribution of all of these different factors to to the way we think and feel. I love this because it's exactly everything we talk about at Open Houses. We always urge everyone just to just to look a little deeper, you know, into what might be going on that has caused the symptom. The symptom is the thing that shows up above the iceberg below the iceberg, under the surface, there is so much going on. And that's exactly what you've just shared there. And, you know, you use the word contribute. And I think that's so important as well to understand that all of these things just add together like a jigsaw. And, you know, if you can just start to look at the little jigsaw puzzles, you can maybe make a change as to how you feel and how you can, like you said, get up and open the curtains, which is such a huge win if you can't do that. But, in terms of the the word contribution as well, I'd love to take that and look at it from a different angle because I know in your book, you talk about the way that these things 
can start to be contributed from such a young age. You know, you talk about pregnant mothers and the development of the brain in their unborn child. And I'd love to just get into that. Let's take it back. Like how far back does this go? I just think this is fascinating and I can't wait to share. So one of the examples I give in the book, and I'll I'll go kind of, let's go two generations back and then I'll bring it forwards. One of the examples I use in the book is the Dutch hunger winter. And so that was an experience that happened in the Netherlands during the, towards the end of the Second World War, where a part of the Netherlands was annexed and it met by uh, German forces. Um, and it meant that no food essentially could get in or out. And so there was a famine in, in this region of the Netherlands. And there were some women who either just before the famine set in or during the famine became pregnant. And so these were women who experienced famine during their pregnancy. And so these babies and these babies' babies since then, so we have two two generations from that point, are the Dutch hunger famine cohort. And what researchers have been able to do with this very interesting, very special group, because we don't kind of get famines in the Western world and in, in the modern era, is to look at the influence of in utero nutritional stress, so a lack of nutrition during pregnancy and the impact on health down the generations. And what they see, for example, is that, you know, not only are, the, of course, the children born smaller and a lower birth weight and smaller head circumference, but that they have different mot- metabolic health risks as well. So they have a higher risk of diabetes. They have a higher tendency to eat a high fat diet. They are more likely to carry fat around the waist. And what seemed to have happened is that the nutritional status during pregnancy, almost it kind of gives the genes an indication of what it can expect to encounter in the world, right? Because you can think of nutrition as it's the only part of the world that we take in physically into our bodies. It's a very powerful source of information about where you are on the planet and what season it is and that kind of thing. And so the genes of the babies during development were getting this signal. There's not much energy out there. There's not much energy out there. There's, you know, we're going to have to really hold on to every little calorie that we can. And so that's what their genes did. They kind of switched to an energy saving, energy holding on to kind of pattern. And that meant though, that when they were born and actually when they were freed at the end of the war and food became more abundant, they have a genotype which says hold on to calories, but food is more abundant. So this mismatch between what their genes are expecting and what the environment provided creates these different health risks. So that's that was one of the kind of big powerful indicators that what happens in pregnancy has effects down the line, not just one generation, but two. We often talk on this podcast about the same sort of thing, but in the state of the nervous system, how a mother who's bathing her unborn child in stress hormones and cortisol may inadvertently be wiring a potentially more sensitive nervous system or interacting with the genes to switch on, et cetera, et cetera. And it feels like this is that discussion, but in a slightly different remit. And I think it's so fascinating to understand that this starts even before the conception. So I love that. And in your book, you also talk about how these nutrient deficiencies, you know, that we're talking about across the span of today's episode, they also can play a role in our actual personalities. I was wondering if that is something different to sort of the generational epigenetic thing that you've already spoken about. Yeah, this is really fascinating and Potentially, I think, really groundbreaking research because I think people are more able to get on board with the idea that, 
you know, your brain is made of nutrients. If you get enough nutrients, you have a different kind of configuration or wiring of your brain, and that might affect things like concentration. But we tend to think about aspects of our personality and behavior as being much more volitional and decision-based. Either I choose to slap someone in the face when I get angry, or I choose not to. You know, that we think it's a very clear, rational decision that we come to when we are in full possession of the facts. And in fact, our justice system is based on that. Our justice system is based on you knew right from wrong, you decided to do wrong, and therefore you are culpable and deserving of punishment. And so it gets very murky when we look at certain features of the relationship between nutrition personality and behavior. And and I think we can break this down in kind of two parts. There's early life and later life. So in early life, we have evidence that nutritional deficiencies in early life, so around the age of kind of zero to three, is a risk factor for two types of worrying behavior in children. So one is that it can, hunger can increase what we call internalizing behaviors. So internalizing behaviors are where the child, when they're in distress, will turn inwards. They become quiet, they withdraw, they are less likely to kind of speak up and talk. They might ruminate, they might have suicidal thoughts and feelings, they might self-harm, that kind of thing. So that's a set of behaviours that are associated with kind of increased psychiatric risk later on in life. But we also know that malnourishment in childhood is also associated in other children with more externalizing behaviors. And so externalizing behaviors are kind of the opposite. They're children who we might call act out. They fight, they kick, they bite, they punch, they graffiti on things. They will be disruptive in class, very much in inverted commas. And what seems to be the the link there is that the malnutrition caused shifts in the way that the brain was configured and that makes them more prone to this type of behavior. So the other thing to say there is that the, I said your brain has this very high energy demand. The highest energy demand is actually in the prefrontal cortex, the front part of your brain, where we consider the kind of higher executive brain functions to reside. So your risk management, your your kind of ability to focus, pay attention, to plan for long-term goals, to suppress your uh, immediate instincts, those kinds of things. The things that we kind of help us to be social animals, they all reside in your prefrontal cortex. And so it's really important that you have a well-developed prefrontal cortex in order to have good kind of function of of those executive qualities. And so again, there's a kind of question about, well, actually, if I have impaired nutrition and in life, do I have impaired prefrontal cortex activity? And does that have an impact on my behavior? But then the later life way that this relationship plays out is really, I think, seen most clearly in the prison studies. And they are a number now of RCTs, there's at least four. There's another one going on, I think, in Australia at the moment with very, very similar paradigms. So they've all been in in male prisoners or young offenders. They've all been at least double blind RCTs. So the person receiving the treatment doesn't know exactly what they're getting, but also the person that's giving it to them doesn't know exactly whether they're getting the placebo or the active treatment. So we've kind of got reducing the risk of bias. But essentially what they do is to split them into two groups. One of you is getting the placebo. One group's getting a placebo. The other group is getting vitamin and mineral supplements. 
And what they see, often within two weeks, but certainly over the average is about 12, uh, eight to 12 weeks of these, of these trials, is a reduction in objective incidents of violence of around 30%. And that's really, really striking. A, because we don't tend to think of an association between what I'm eating and my likelihood of punching someone in the face, but also (laughs) because it really raises the question of what we mean when we say volitional behaviour, right? Because if we're saying someone is responsible for their own behavior. And I, you know, I am an advocate as a, as a psychologist, a practicing psychologist, I'm an advocate for personal <laughs> responsibility. And it's not just what's done to you. It's also what you do to yourself and what you do to others. But if, for example, in the judicial system, we're saying that this is all based on volition, we're assuming that the machinery that is making the decisions is working well, right? We're assuming that you were speeding because your car was working fine, but you had your foot down on the pedal. You chose to put your foot down on the pedal. What we're not assuming is that there was something wrong with your car's mechanics, which meant that your your car was going faster than it should have. We're assuming that the person sitting in that driving seat is making a decision about whether they're speeding or not. When actually... What, was, what this evidence might be indicating is that there might be a contribution to the state of the car to whether you were speeding or not that we're missing and that we're just attributing to your decision-making. And so mm. this, I, I can see why this is a problem in terms of kind of judicial system and sentencing and that kind of thing. But I think it's really important that we, as a broader society, can think about this question because what it means is For example, if you're a seven-year-old boy sitting in a class and you're finding it hard to concentrate and you're elbowing the person you're sitting next to and you you can't sit still, are we going to hold that child culpable? Are we going to say that, you know, little Billy is just acting up and he wants attention and he can't sit still and he needs to learn better and he needs to have more punishments? Or are we going to be a bit more mindful and think, actually, is there something going on with this child which means that he's finding it difficult to comply with the expectations of the environment. He's finding it difficult to control his impulses. He's finding it difficult to make an assessment of risk or understand the consequences of his behaviours. Because that very much changes the way that we approach and potentially label children and, and young adults. I feel like I've been talking for ages. Oh. Sorry. No, I love it. I love it. You you have so much more to say than me. So I'm so happy that you have been talking because again, there's so many things you share that are so incredible because I, I am obsessed with prisons. It's like very weird. I love a good prison program. Everyone's like, you're so weird. I can attest to when I'm watching these people on the prison programs, the food that they are being fed is almost inhumane. Like sometimes I don't even know what they're being fed. So that there is makes so much sense with that fascinating prison study. And I love how you touched in onto anger and aggression, because I think where we've gone recently on the podcast is touching on the anxious attachment style and how that can be also driven by nutrient deficiencies and nervous system dysregulation that often isn't spoken about in in mainstream sort of, I guess, life. I also love what you said about the prefrontal cortex developing. And I was going to make a joke, which was that, you know, if I'm not mistaken, is that the part of the brain that doesn't finish developing until you're 25? Is that right? 
Yeah, it's considered to be the kind of latest, uh, the last place or part of the brain where there's full myelination, so proper configuration. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to make a joke and say, okay, perfect. I'm just going to, I'm just going to contribute all of my horrendous teenage and sort of early 20s decisions to the fact that I was actually just malnourished because of my university experience. But, <laughs> yeah, you know. your, your brain wasn't fully baked. But I mean, that is part of the reasoning and, it, and it's part of the, the big kind of moral dilemma around, I think more so in the US, trying minors as adults, you know, because the question is actually, was the machinery with which they were making this decision fully mm. baked? Was it finished? Was it, or was it still under construction. And if that's the case, then can we, you know, if we're giving people very, very long sentences, is it fair to have an adult be punished for something that they did with a child's brain kind of thing? Oh, it's so multi-layered. And and I think that's one of the most important things that you cover in your book, how there are so many different angles to that. Today, we've already spoken about the genetics and the generational epigenetics and the environment and the things that you're eating on a day-to-day basis. Like there are so many layers to this. And then the systemic injustices and inequality and, and the issues with price and access. Like there are so many layers to this, but I think one of my my favorite things that you've kind of taken us through on this journey today is this concept of almost starting with us as babies being conceived. And then we've spoken about children and then we've spoken about adults there. And another thing you've spoken about in your book is this, this reference to increasing rates of Alzheimer's and dementia. And now I have two grandparents in my family that suffered with that. But also I understand from my position of of my job that I can control a great deal of my genetics with my lifestyle choices, nutrition being one of them. So I don't feel as scared of my destiny in inverted commas because I don't see it as my destiny. But I'd love to just talk about that for a little bit, you know, rising cases of dementia. Let's get into that. Mm. Yeah. And it's a real, it's a kind of a real conundrum. And I think you touch on some really important features of it because I, one of the things that people assume, or two of the things that people assume about dementia or Alzheimer's disease is A, that if it runs in the family, it runs in the family, right? So if a parent or grandparent has had it, then I'm much more likely to have it. The assumption is that it's kind of largely genetically driven and that's not true actually kind of less than the the estimates vary some say less than five percent others say less than one percent of your alzheimer's disease risk is genetically driven why do we have these rapidly increasing rates you know it's the leading cause of death in the uk and that's not necessarily because we've got an aging population because according to the World Health Organization statistics places like japan and italy have much older on average populations than we do. So it's not just the factor of age. If that were the case, we would expect Japan and Italy to have higher rates of Alzheimer's disease. And then we have the the Lancet Commission, which tells us that if people improve their lifestyle in line with the the best evidence, then we could reduce, prevent, delay 40% of global Alzheimer's disease cases. Wow. Which is extraordinary. That's literally crazy. That's, that's crazy. And I, I also, I didn't realise that Alzheimer's was the leading cause of death in the UK. I didn't know that. Yeah. No, exactly. People wouldn't assume that. We hear much more about cancer, I think, or we hear much more yeah. about heart disease, but we don't hear as much about dementia. And actually women have twice the risk of dementia compared to men. So this is 
in a large part, a woman's issue, but it's, you know, wow. it's a population level issue. So what's concerning is that we have a leading cause of disease that many people are afraid of, but a tiny proportion of those people know that there's anything that they can do to influence the outcome or their risk factors. So there's this real mismatch between the risk and the likelihood, perhaps, and our belief about what we can do about it. And actually, there's an enormous, there are 12 known modifiable disease risk factors for dementia. And those are like things that you can do something about, not your genetic risk, not your age, not your your gender or your ethnic background, things that you have some influence over. And I read somewhere that if you do get Alzheimer's or dementia, it started approximately 10 years before it even showed up. Now, I might have got that statistic wrong and, and no one no one quote me on that. But is that true in terms of understanding that the decisions that we're making today, they are impacting our brain health, not only today, but also in the future? Is that how we should be looking at it? Like these big changes, they take time, but these things also take time to develop and change. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it's it's at least 10 years. Some Most people will say it's about 20 years. So you'll be diagnosed on average at the age of 65, but the damage that begins to accumulate that will later become your symptoms starts to emerge in your 40s. So actually, these modifiable risk factors that I mentioned are your midlife risk factors. They are things that you need to be thinking about at least by your 40s because that's the point at which it's going to start accumulating into damage that will emerge as symptoms of disease in your later years. Wow. Wow. 20. That is, that's like a third of someone's lifetime for, for, well, that's not quite, not very good math. And I hope that anyone who is listening, I hope what you are taking from this is the empowering angle of, of this conversation. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I'm in this space is I feel so empowered by knowledge and understanding that we are not a slave to our genetics and we are not a slave to what's gone before us. And we are in control of a lot of things. We can contribute to a lot of things. You know, we can really change the the course of our health trajectory, not only for us, but for our children, for our unborn children, you know, really for the collective planet as a whole. And, you know, I think the collective piece is, is another one because I had no idea when I moved to Mexico that it had surpassed the United States in terms of the obesity level. Like I just had no idea. I just, you know, thought that I just didn't think anything of it. And and then my boyfriend educated me on that more and more. And he said, oh, it's because of Coca-Cola. And I, I laughed, you know, I thought, I thought he was, I thought he was joking. I just kind of laughed. And he was like, no, I'm not joking. And now you, I look around and I see, you know, it's a very normal thing for people to buy these two, three litre bottles of, of Coca-Cola that we just don't even have in, in the UK. And that's all they buy from the shop. And it's just, made me realise like once again, wow, there are so many things contributing to this that that so many people are not aware of. And, and so I, I love the empowering educational angle of this discussion and where we've gone today. And just as we come to wrap up, I know, I know you can't prescribe in any way like this diet will work for you. Everyone is bio-unique. Everyone is bio-individual. I hope that's another thing that people will take from this discussion that, you know, 
physically, biochemically, we are all different. We all have different genetics and SNPs and nutrient levels and all of these different things. So this is this is something that you need to go on your own journey. If you have the ability to get tested in certain things, I would always recommend you to do that because testing for me was the thing that opened my eyes. But I'd love it if we could just give some examples of what like a whole food unprocessed diet looks like. Like we know that that means no McDonald's, no deep fat fried stuff, like like less just sugar, candy, you know, like soda or all of that. In terms of like the good foods, what, what do you think would be like a really, a couple of good things for a diet to revolve around? Yeah. Like if we were thinking about a cheat sheet, you mean like that kind of exactly. thing? Yeah. <laughs> the things that I would focus on including, because I think people, you know, not just people, our brains don't like the idea that we're losing out on things, cutting things out, avoiding things. It starts to focus on them and resist that idea. So I always work from a position of inclusion and and addition. And the things that I would focus on including, for me, those cornerstone foods or nutrients are the omega-3 fatty acids, the marine omega-3 fatty acids, so EPA, but in particular DHA. And we're thinking about DHA at the beginning and end of life, really. So conception, pregnancy, early life, childhood, and then again, when you're kind of in those midlife risk factor time. So that's one to two. In the UK, the recommendation is one to two portions of fish per week, of which one is oily. In Finland, for example, it's higher. The recommendation is three portions of fish per week, but somewhere between that, two to three, one to three portions of fish per week to provide those all essential, irreplaceable omega-3 fatty acids. After that, then I would be thinking leafy green vegetables, like I said, like a, a daily serving. And you can find, what's really nice about that is that you can find lots of different ways to fit that in. Like even if you are having, like just now, I just had some scrambled eggs and just threw some spinach on on the side. You can add a lump of frozen spinach into a smoothie. You can, even if you're buying a shop-bought sandwich, you can buy a bag of of, of spinach and you can just whack it on in there and carry on with your life. Like it's, it doesn't have to be this huge overhaul, but we know that these are important nutrients for your long-term brain health. After that, then those brightly colored foods. So if you can get berries into your life and frozen is are absolutely fine. They're more economical. They hold on to the nutrients, not a problem. Uh, berries about four times a week will be helpful. And then fiber, for that, we didn't really even get into the gut microbiome, but partly <laughs> um, to feed your gut microbiome because for lots and lots of reasons, from a specifically brain health perspective, when your gut microbiome break down ferment fiber, one of their byproducts are short chain fatty acids. So omega-3s are the long chain fatty acids and then there are short chain fatty acids. And what they can do is they cross over into the, the bloodstream and they protect the integrity of your blood brain barrier. And your blood brain mm. barrier is this very selective barrier that essentially stops or it's designed to stop anything you know, potentially toxic crossing in from your bloodstream into your brain. Your brain is very, very sensitive to anything being there that it shouldn't. Um, your brain has its own unique immune cells, microglia, that will try to attack and def- defend against any intruders. And what you don't want is neuroinflammation. And so the big concern, and I mentioned early on, that there isn't a single age group in the U- UK that is making those, hitting those recommended levels of fiber, is for me, the question is, 
or what's happening to their blood-brain barrier integrity, because we know that impaired integrity of the blood-brain barrier is a very, very early part of the disease cycle of dementia. You know, it seems to emerge before we see amyloid plaques and tau tangles. It seems to be there very, very, very early on. So maintaining, protecting your blood-brain barrier is really important. And one of the ways of doing that is to make sure you are getting enough fibre. So I would be saying, overall, this cheat sheet is fish, greens, berries, beans. Those Trying to include those foods on a, on a regular basis uh, is a good start, I think. I'm glad you said beans there because I was about to say, can you give me some examples of fibre? And I think I think this says it all, right? I've worked in the wellness industry for 10 years. I am so health conscious. But even when you were talking about fibre, all I could think about was Sultana Bran, which I know we have a ton of, I know we have a ton of American listeners. So you guys are going to be like, what, what is she talking about? Like it is this, it is this like cereal in the UK, which is just like, bran and sultanas and I love it and I'm always like that's 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 my fiber but I think you've just told me that maybe beans are a better option like what any other fiber sources that is not sultana bran yeah. and not beans so, <laughs> so sultana bran is, a, is and actually like things like sultana bran and I quite like like raisin wheat so there's like mini shredded wheats with raisins inside mm. as a snack as like I'm looking for a high fiber snack yes so first of all we're talking about your your whole grains. So oats, barley, rye, wheat, spelt, mm. all of those guys, as long as they are whole or, you know, the, the wholemeal version, that means the brown version of your main carb sources. So wholemeal bread instead of white bread, brown wholemeal pasta instead of white pasta, potatoes with their skins on rather than just always peeled potatoes, that kind of thing. I think if we can get more people on high fiber snacks, finding ways to get more beans into your life, uh, which for you in Mexico, it should be fairly easy. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say for someone living in Mexico, like I'm not eating enough beans. I, like literally my boyfriend says that that's all they eat at work for lunch. Like every day is just beans and, and I'm not eating any beans. So I need to get on the bean train because I don't think, I think, I think my fiber is, you know, listening to you speaking there, I think that's the thing that I find the hardest. Like I find the fruit easy. I find the fish easy. I find the high quality meats easy. I'm good with the vegetables. I'm good with the avocado and the spinach. I don't think I'm good with my fiber. So I think you've inspired me today to go to go away and see how I can find some beans. I mean, I wouldn't know how to cook them, but, you know, find some beans, buy some beans, get my boyfriend to cook some beans and then eat some beans. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. We're coming up for time. And like you said, you know, we didn't even manage to get into the gut microbiome, but we already have gone through so many things. And just as we wrap up, I'd love it if you could tell everyone listening where we can find you, where we can find you on social media, where we can find your book, how best to buy it, and anything else that you want to share with the Open House audience. Sure. Thank you. Unprocessed is out in the US in June. It's already out in the UK, everywhere that you buy your books. Worldwide, I know the book depository does free international shipping. So if you can't wait for it to be released in your country, you can get free shipping through the book depository. The best place to find me online is Instagram. I do have, technically I do have a Facebook account, but those poor people <laughs> haven't seen me in years. Instagram is where we hang and I'm at food and psych on there. And that's where I post kind of updates on research. I try, I, I don't do a huge amount of recipes, but I do try to give like meal inspiration like here's the kind of thing that you can do because I just want people to have 
a sense of the the basics so they know what they can kind of, how they might incorporate it into their daily life as well as kind of I have a book club and you know, general chit chat about psychology so that's probably the best place to find me and then if people want to know more about the prison studies I did a series of podcasts called crime and nourishment you can find that on my website which is kimberlywilson.co and it's kimberly with an l-e-y Amazing. And we will link absolutely everything in the show notes from your socials to where you can buy the book to, yeah, everything. And even the prison studies, we like to put the studies that we talk about in the show notes because it's very important that the things we talk about on this podcast have been, you know, adequately researched. And you've referenced so many things today that have been. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us, for sharing your knowledge with us. You are going to be educating and inspiring so many people. We've never really dug into this too much on the podcast. So thank you. It's been my deep honour to, to have you on this podcast and I hopefully will speak to you very soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.